Well, good morning. Take just a moment and welcome the LaGrange campus and our online viewers. We're glad that you're here with us. Let's give them a round of applause. Uh, it's a privilege to be here with you. I, I want to say thank you to the, your leadership team across both campuses. Uh, you, you've got some strong, committed people, men and women who love the Lord. They love you. They're committed to you. They're committed to this community, and uh, you're in great hands. This is a great investment, a great place to be. And I want you to know that God is, is really anointing what's going on. And it's been a privilege for me to be a part of this the last few weeks and couple of months and, and to see how God is using them. Uh, it's, it's truly an honor. Now, I, I love Christmas. I love this season. Today, we're focused in our second Sunday in the Advent uh, series, and we're focusing on the power of belief. The power of belief is a very important part of life. It's the power of belief for Christ followers. Uh, there's power in belief for those who aren't yet Christ followers as well. Caleb did a great, week, a great job last week laying out the meaning of Advent as being the arrival, right? We are to anticipate the coming of Christ. That's what this season is. We understand that, that Jesus came as a, a child and lived a perfect life and died for you and me, and that, that this, season, this season is an opportunity for us to kind of reflect on where we've been, what we're doing, how well we're living. Uh, we understand uh, that, that, quite honestly, the busyness of this season, life can get in the way. I'm a guy that loves Christmas. Anybody else in here like that? Come on. Do, really? All right. Well, you don't act like it. You gotta, that hand needs to go up. Now, I know last week Caleb kind of, uh, you know, put the caboose on the, you know, the Christmas tree going up early, and I'm not going to call him a Scrooge publicly today, um, but I am going to say this, is that, you know, I'm a guy that um, used to have about 9,000 lights on his tree. I'm in recovery, and I'm down to about 4,500 lights, thanks to my wife, my godly wife, who is a, a strong encourager. I typically try to start, you know, as early in November as I can. Uh, a couple years ago, I started the middle of October. And um, that was evidently too early for my family. And so I'm now, you know, early November. I love Christmas. Uh, it can get out of hand. I have a Christmas problem. I'm in recovery. We understand that. But I will tell you that this is an important season in the life of the church. It's an important season in the life of the believer. It's a great time for us to really reflect, to look back. It's a time when people that, we are, that, that are close to us but far from God are open to come to church. It's a great time to leverage our relationship with Jesus for the gospel. You see, I'm sentimental. I love this season. I want to slow it down. I want to enjoy every moment of it. I, I like the sights and sounds and smells and the taste. And, and I love the fact that Christmas goodies are full of gluten and that they're allowed during this season. Right? You with me? Some of you. Some of you in those homes. Amen. Right? You will get that. Uh, I, lo- I like the fact that all the healthy eating, you know, is passed away for this month. Can I get an amen right here? My brother. The bottom line is this, I love this season. It's a great opportunity for us. I love the movies and, the, and, 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 and just the, the energy of the season. One of my favorite movies, Christmas movies, is uh, Miracle on 34th Street. It's a great, it's not necessarily the greatest godly theme, right? But it's a, it's a great story of belief and faith. And, and we understand, if you remember that storyline, you understand that a man claiming to be Santa Claus is put on trial for what he believes and, and the judge comes in and the judge is uh, taking the perspective of uh, hoping to provide an answer for the age-old question, does Santa Claus really exist? That's the storyline. And what does the judge come to the conclusion of? He comes to the conclusion that if someone believes hard enough, then it can be true. Then it must be true. Then it becomes true. You know, in reality, that doesn't happen. We get that, right? What, believing doesn't make it true. It, there has to be substance and evidence to it. 
There's got to be some, some, some factual aspects to it. Just saying that something is what it is doesn't mean that it's true. If we're not careful, we will allow misdirected belief to become our little g God. Even if we believe wrongly about the things of God, we can allow that to become our God. There's power in belief. We have to be careful with our belief. Misdirected belief can devastate individuals and families and countries. I hear statements like, my God would never allow this to happen, or my God wouldn't do this, or my God. Guess what? Who are we to say what God's going to do or not do? Unless we're in the word of God, we may not understand the nature and the essence of God, and it's easy for our belief to become skewed. Are you with me this morning? You know what I'm saying? I had a friend that said, you know what? God would never let the IRS levy taxes against me. My response was, don't file taxes for a couple years and see what your God allows right? Our preferences and our our strong sense of self-preservation gets in the way of what we believe. It gets in the way of us understanding the essence and the character of God, the true God. And we so often wrongly associate faith and belief with circumstances that we find ourselves in life. And And we say, you know, God, take these circumstances away from me. These aren't of you. Even though I made decisions that got myself here, take them away. We understand from Scripture there are at least four words, uh, Greek words for faith. Uh, the most commonly used is pistuo, which means literally uh, persuasion. So keep that in mind. The root word is petho, which means to convince. The word for belief shares the same root word uh, in Greek, and it's, it's pistis, which means confidence or trust. So we understand that faith and Faith and, um, and belief share the same root word. They're from the same essence, and they're, they're pointing the same direction. They're, so we understand that they're two sides of the same coin. And so we know this from Scripture. When we demonstrate our faith, we are, in essence, persuading others, right? According to, uh, as we translate this, we're persuading others. And as we continue to allow God to build our belief as we walk with him daily through trials and tribulations, through difficult circumstances, our faith grows. We know that from James, right? Turn over or turn your Bible on to the book of James for just a minute. We're going we're gonna to start right there. James 1, which I, I love the book of James. It is uh, it's the oldest New Testament book. It's, a, it's the capstone of the Old Testament, actually. It was the first book written. It was written to Jews from a Jewish perspective. So it's really plain truth gospel. It's really simple, straightforward theology, the kind of theology that I, that I like a lot. So we're going to look at verse 2. James says this, Count all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This word steadfastness is such an important word for the believer. We understand that James is writing to believers, by the way. This isn't to people in general. This is to you and to me, Christ followers. He's saying, let steadfastness have its way. And so when we look at steadfastness, steadfastness means strapped in, your feet locked in that you're facing forward, that you're focused on Jesus, you're focused on the things of God, and you're not impacted back and forth because of all of the pressures of the world. You with me? Locked in. You're steadfast, deep-rooted. That's what he's saying. Stay deep-rooted. There's true power in belief. There's true power in belief. They're two sides of the same coin. Let me tell you what faith is. Faith is trusting God's character, even if what I believe about his character is not completely accurate. Think about that for a moment. 
We must trust the character of God more than we trust our circumstances that we find ourselves in. We must trust the character of God more than we trust our understanding of his character. Theology built on skewed personal belief is truly dangerous and it's wrecked life after life after life. There's power in true belief. You see, when a a Christ follower is living in belief, true belief, what happens is he or she is internally motivated by the power of the Holy Spirit in, in their lives and they're externally focused on the needs of others. What that means is this, is that I'm standing locked in steadfast, that the world is, is not impacting me, and that I am motivated by the power of the Holy Spirit, which comes upon me as a, at the moment of salvation. And I set myself aside for the greater good of the kingdom of God. That's, that's what I'm talking about, internally motivated by the Holy Spirit, externally focused on others. And if we're not careful, we will allow that to become flip-flopped. We should be known as believers. We, not just because of our words, but because of our actions, What about those people that are close to us and far from God? What would they say about us? How would they demonstrate? How would they describe us? How would they verbalize who we are and who Christ is to us? Think about this. What would happen if you were put on trial, like Santa Claus was in the the movie? What would happen if you were put on trial for your faith? Is there enough evidence to convict you? How would you be judged? As Christ followers, our faith should be demonstrated in such a way that we help others see the void that they have in their lives. I fear that if I'm not careful, I'll try to live in such a way that I connect so much with the world that my life doesn't demonstrate the hope that I have in Christ. And when I do that, I'm neutralizing the gospel. I'm I'm, I'm watering down the truth of the gospel. I fear that the reason why more people aren't trusting Christ is because Christ followers maybe aren't living well enough. And we spend more time telling people what we do, telling people what we do, telling people what we do, and telling people what they should do, rather than living a life of faith and demonstrating how Christ has truly changed our lives. And what happens is they they see no great need for Jesus because we're not living the truth. We're watering it down. We're not living the hope that we have and and they see there's no hope because they don't understand there's another hope by which to live. Our belief should point others to see what they don't have, not in a nasty way, not in a hit you over the head with a Bible way, not in that that way, not in a, a judgmental way, but in the reality of who Christ is, the belief every day. It's really, really key. Belief really does matter. Belief is a, is a verb. The word belief is a verb. It's a demonstration. It's the evidence for those who are Christ's followers. And it's the hope of redemption for those who are not yet. So let's talk about the power of your belief. Ask yourself that question. How am I demonstrating the belief that I'll have in Jesus? Because we understand that there are people that are close to you and far from God. And what they need from you is the hope of for redemption that you have. Our actions must point that way. We are to let our light shine. We're to live this hope. Our belief is evidenced by our actions, not just our words. So often we can water down the truth with language that we don't follow through on. 
For leaders, one of my huge pet peeves and the staff will tell you is it, it drives me crazy to have language without leadership. We begin to call things something that it's not. We begin to, we, we minimize holiness and we call this thing holy. And so pretty soon the generation behind us thinks this is holiness. And so when we have language without leadership, what we have is hypocrisy. We're changing the course of belief and we're setting the bar really low. God has set us apart. He's empowered us with the Holy Spirit as Christ's followers. We are called and we are bought with a price. We, Paul says we are Christ ambassadors as though he were making his appeal through us. So how's your belief? It's a tough Christmas message, isn't it? But this is the time that we look back and reflect. What has God done in our life? Belief does matter. Belief is a verb. Faith is a noun. And so if you're, a, if you're a, a, you know, an English major, you understand the noun-verb agreement and how the more we believe, our faith grows and we begin this cycle of growth as a believer. And, and we understand that right-centered belief from the Word of God, if we are outside the Word of God, how in the world will we know if we are in alignment with belief? This is the greatest resource we have through Christ. It's our gift. The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, that's how we make sure we're in alignment. See, you see, I can believe in Christ, but do I believe Christ daily as I walk through life? There's a difference there. I believe in Christ. That's my, I place my faith in Christ, but am I walking? Am I believing Him daily for my circumstances, for my situation? Am I focused internally, uh, driven by the power of the Holy Spirit and focused on others? Have I set myself aside? Or is my belief stronger that God wants to change my circumstances than it is make my circumstances a growth season for me to mature me through those? James is pretty clear about that, isn't he? He's pretty clear. He says, remain steadfast. Remain steadfast. If we go on and we look in uh, verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. That is so important to the life of the believer. I don't know what to do next. So what should we do? Ask God for wisdom. We don't know the future. We should be praying and asking God for wisdom every day. But it doesn't stop there. That's the faith part of this. That's our part of it. But let him ask in faith without doubting, with no doubting, which means in full belief. That's not the belief, that's not believing in God, that's believing God. That's what that is. James has written to believers. He's saying, ask in faith and believe God. Don't doubt. Why? Anyone who doubts is like the wave of the sea. You're impacted by your surrounding. So you're not focused on who Jesus is. You're not focused on the power of belief. You're not focused on demonstrating your faith well to those that are close to you but far from God because we're so impacted by our surroundings everything's a crisis and we're not we're not living well for the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is uh, driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord holy moly why because he's double he's a double-minded man unstable in all his ways what that literally means is you are not steadfast your feet are not locked in, you're not locked in. What you're doing is he's saying you're looking at the waves, you're looking here and you're, and you're thinking this and you're thinking that and, and whoever the loudest voices in your life, whatever the biggest crisis in your life, that's the direction you're going and where is Christ in all of this? Where is God in all of this? That's no different than the other person who's not a Christ follower. So we understand that God wants to leverage us 
we understand that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. In this season, we're going to look at John the Baptist. And so turn over to to, uh, Matthew 3 for just a moment. And as you're turning there, think about this. If my theology of God focuses on or expects more on God removing my circumstances and less on growing me through those circumstances, then I have become entitled. And when I become entitled, I'm focusing on self more than others. And what I'm doing is I'm, even as a Christ follower, I'm demonstrating a sense of anti-belief. And anti-belief, what happens is, is that I am externally motivated. I am moved by my circumstances more than I'm moved by the power of the Holy Spirit and what is right in my life. It's a very important point to make. And then we look in Matthew at John the Baptist. Why was he so important? Why is he so important that we would focus on him during this Advent season? He was and is important because he was the one, he was the precursor, he was the herald, if you will. He was the one that that pointed people to the coming Christ. He's the one that, that announced the coming Messiah. And nothing in the history of the world has been more important than the coming Messiah, than Jesus here on earth. Nothing has been more important. John the Baptist is the one who prepared the way for Christ and his message also prepares us for this season. And it also prepares us for the return of Christ because as Christ followers, we have to look toward the second coming of Christ. So let's jump in at, uh, in verse one. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Shortest message in history. Two points. Repent. It's time. Invitation, take up the offering, we're out of here. That was John the Baptist. You see, but it was so much more than that. If you begin to study John the Baptist, you understand that, that an angel visited his parents and, and, and told them that he was going to fulfill the prophecy that had been uh, void for 40 years, that, that they'd been waiting on for 40 years. This was an important time in history. This was a time that generations had looked toward. And John the Baptist is fulfilling that. And, and what does he say? Repent. The time is now. This word repent is used to imply a total alteration of the mind. Literally, a change of mind. He's saying you have been thinking poorly. You've been thinking wrongly. You've been, you've been thinking in a different way. You've been trying to, to work and figure it out and to, be, and to be good enough and to do the right things. He's saying think differently. You need to repent. Consider your ways. Change your mind. You have thought incorrectly. Think again and think better. That's what John the Baptist was saying. The change of mind leads to a change of way. He's saying you must believe and follow him. The Christ, the Messiah that's coming, you must believe and follow him. This word belief, there's great power in belief. There's great action in belief. Belief is not passive. Belief is active. This is hugely important to us because this is what faith looks like. This is where belief lives. Verse 3, the fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah 43. This is verse 3. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the path for him. This was the foretelling. He was the evidence of the foretelling. And verse 4 talks about John and how he was dressed. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food were locusts and honey. I, I bet he was a sight to see. There's certainly nothing attractional about him. Can you imagine his breath? Locusts? 
I guess that's what the honey was for, right? But, but, the, but the point is, is that he w- people weren't coming to see him. There was nothing about him that was um, beautiful, maybe sideshow stuff, I don't know. But, but what was attractional about him was his message. People, at verse 5 says, people went out from Jerusalem, all of Judea, and the whole region of the Jordan. People came from all around. They heard the message, and verse 6 says, confessing their sins which is the repentance, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. You see, there was power in his message of belief. What he said, what he did, how he demonstrated it, there was alignment biblically. And there was an appropriate belief message in who Jesus was, who the Messiah was. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming uh, to where he was baptizing, he said to them, I love this. You brood of vipers. Basically, he's calling them sons of, of, of demons or sons of Satan. You brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? This is an important uh, illustration and a point to make here is that in those days, after the harvest was done, there were still uh, plants in, in, in the field, and those fields would be overtaken by snakes and serpents. And so what he's referring to, they knew exactly what he was saying. What he was referring to was this. He was saying that these fields are on fire, which is what they did. And all of the men and all the uh, older boys got sticks on the outside of the field. And some of the daughters that maybe this, uh, you know, the dads were frustrated with got sticks. And they, and they waited as the serpents were run out of the fields. And they killed those serpents in these rows. Are you with me? He's saying, he called them serpents. He said, you're fleeing from the fire, basically just like these snakes are. That's what he's saying to these, to these men. You see, these men thought they were something like they were rich. They were educated. They were, they were, they had the genealogy. And so they were fine. And they were, he was saying to them, who is, who warned you? Because he realized that there was such a a distinct class difference in uh, socioeconomic and all of these things in that day and time that the normal person would never approach a Sadducee or a a, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, never, and, and warn them about, about the repentance. And so what John is doing, he's warning them. He's warning them. And then verse eight, man, one of my favorite sentences in the Bible, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He's blowing up their faith system right there. He's telling them, you should produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You should be men who are repentant, who are sacrificial of your life for for the coming Messiah, and you should produce fruit out of belief. That's what he's saying, produce fruit. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He's talking about the genealogy. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. He's basically saying you're as common as rocks and as thoughtless as well. The ax is already at the root of the tree and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What he's doing is he is aligning this for the second coming already. When he's saying Jesus is on his way, he's the, he's the Messiah. You, this is your chance. And if you don't take it, you're going, to be, you're going to be discarded for not producing fruit. So you must repent, understand. He spoke clear and plain to them. So we know the Sadducees and Pharisees and the Essenes were there. We don't know much about the Essenes. We know that he was speaking both to Jews and Gentiles. And, 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 and this whole issue of baptism is very important, and it's worthy of making a point uh, right here, is that this issue of baptism, that it wasn't the Jewish religious cleansing that they had been used to. John was using... At, 
an, an old ordinance, ordinance. He applied this old ordinance to this new, new purpose. He's blowing up their belief system and saying, you're baptized because of your repentance. You're showing the world. Uh, that's what your baptism is. The baptism doesn't save you. And he goes on in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. It's the power of belief. The winnowing fork is at his hand and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up all the chaff in unquenchable fire. John is pointing them in this season. He's pointing them directly to the second coming. He's saying there will be separation. There must be repentance. And because of repentance, there will be demonstration of your faith. John's saying here, here comes Christ. He's the fulfillment. That's where we find ourselves today. We're in this waiting period in between the first and second coming. We, we get that. We, we understand that, that Christ died for us. And uh, as Caleb mentioned last week, we're in this waiting period. And we need to understand John's message. We need to take it to heart because John's message should be our message today. You see, as Christ followers, we are the John the Baptist of the day. It's our message. We are to prepare the coming of the Christ. We are to proclaim Jesus is returning. We are to, our, our message should be repent. There's no time. And our lives should demonstrate that. That's why we exist. If you're a Christ follower, you're empowered with the Holy Spirit. You can do this. This is what you're called to do. This is what I'm called to do. We can do this. It blows my mind that a, that a perfect message and a perfect Savior, and, and the message of that is entrusted to, to me, the big idiot. How can God allow me to be the mouthpiece for Jesus? This season is a great time to look back on the year and to ask ourselves questions as to how well we've been actively waiting. How, how well are we doing in this time? How seriously have I taken the fact that Jesus died and rose for me? How well am I actively waiting in regard to uh, the things of God? Have I become disinterested in the things of God? Do I, do I think through those things? Have I been half-hearted and lukewarm about uh, my involvement, about the things, living the life that God wants for me, about the demonstration of my belief? Am I running from trials rather than asking God to, to grow me through those trials? He, we understand that trials are the tool that God uses to grow us, and they're not all easy. I get that. Has my worship of God become a matter of, of boring routine? Am I engaged? How about my daily activities? Do I go about my, uh, the places where I live, work, or play, or learn without much thought of God? How am I doing with people that are close to me but far from God? Hmm. You see, we can't say this is irrelevant. One day Jesus will return. We understand that. We believers will be found faultless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 1.18, because we're judged by our works, good or bad works, because we have the relationship right. For those who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus, their judgment's going to be separated from God. They're going to be judged because of their lack of belief. You see, the works of a non-believer are relevant. This is harsh, but they're, not, they're, they're irrelevant. They're, there's benefit here on earth, but there's no eternal benefit because the relationship's not right with Jesus. There's no value in that. We should have an urgency for those who aren't Christ's followers because that is why we are existing. That's why when the moment of salvation, we're not taken to heaven. We are left here as mouthpieces, as ambassadors for Christ through this season of Advent and every day of the year. We are to be proclaiming that Jesus is returning. 
All I have should be leveraged for the Lord Jesus Christ. Every breath I take, the reason why I have breath in my lungs is to proclaim the gospel, to live it well. The fact of the matter is, if you're not a Christ follower, it's not going to be okay. It's not. And I say that with grace and mercy. If there's conviction in your life, let us work with you. Let us work through the power of the Lord. God wants us as Christ followers to make decisions based on faith, not how easy or difficult things will be. Some of the greatest moments in the gospel happen in the midst of difficult times. And I understand there are difficult times represented in this room. I get it. I'm not, this is not a, a, a sweet spirit, uh, you know, uh, everything is going to be fine, ignore your problem kind of a thing. This is a, a message about don't be a mamsy-pamsy Christian. Get over it. My brother passed away 10 years ago, and at his funeral, he passed away. He had lung cancer. It was kind of a tragic thing, and he had not been living for the Lord long. He struggled through that belief system, and uh, at his funeral, you know, I was able to, to stand and share the gospel, and 13 people accepted Christ. Now, one of those people that accepted Christ was my, my, my uh, best friend growing up's father, and he was killed about two and a half years later in a tragic accident. So my brother died literally worried about a life wasted because he had not led anyone to the Lord. He had not modeled it well for others. He had not lived for the Lord. And in my brother's death, his faith, his belief, the change of life that he had, the change of mind, the change of action that happened in the last 18 months of his life proved witness to the Lord, to, be, to those around him, to be able to share Christ with others and literally made a, an eternity of difference for my friend's father. You with me? In the hardest of circumstances, God can leverage and use that. Jesus tells us that we should be alert. We don't know the day or the time, that we should pay attention, that we need to be ready in and out of season. Our faith must be active if we're to live as true believers. We're to do all we can and let God do the rest. So this is the Christmas season. Here's a great way of putting it. We've got a Scrooge that maybe he is just trying to kind of hide from this and just not goes out. He's, he's trying to avoid this whole season. You know, ball humbug, you get that. Those of you who don't have your Christmas trees up, I'm not talking to you. And then you have this little boy that comes down the stairs every week, every, every day, and he's, he runs to the tree and he counts the presents and he's excited. How many more days? How many more days? And he's changing the calendar and he's like, mm right? He's living expectantly. He's living in such a way that, that, he, that he believes something. He, he's focused on that prize of that day, that moment. And as Christ followers, we have a choice of living either way during this interim time. We can live a passive life. We can choose to wait for his return passively, which doesn't require much energy or attention at all. And certainly no commitment on our part, right? If God wants us, he knows where we are. He's all knowing. I get it. I believe God. He's all knowing. He, he knows where, where to find me. We deal with our own concerns. We look after our own needs for leisure. We have little desire or motivation to bother with prayer or Bible study or mission or uh, you know, our neighborhood uh, or deliberately living the Christian life. Or we can live like the little boy that's so excited, so expectant, so looking forward to this moment in time. This waiting involves prayer and, and focus and, and it involves uh, the gathering of, uh, together of believers. It involves really just being able to, to demonstrate your faith, deliberately living the Christian life, going out of your way to serve others like many of you do in here. See, the truth of the matter is if you don't believe Jesus will, will return, it doesn't really matter what you do. 
But if you do believe Jesus is going to keep his word, then we need to examine how active we've been during this time of waiting. This is the power of belief. We are given the power of belief as Christ followers for a purpose, to demonstrate to others. You may say, hey, Don, I've blown it. Won't work for me. You don't know who I am. Your life's easy. You get to stand up and talk about the Lord. No problems. I get that. And maybe that's true. But you see, 20-something years ago, when I was in college, there was a knock at my door at 5.31 morning, Tuesday morning. And I opened the door, and they put handcuffs on me. And what had happened was I'd made some really foolish decisions as a college student. I was in this town, recruited to play college baseball, did this whole thing, and I I decided I was going to take a shortcut. And I made a, a, a couple stupid mistakes. Fortunately, that didn't go any further than that. The Lord allowed me to be arrested in that moment. They, 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 they uh, took me down, booked me in, put me in jail. You know, that afternoon, walked up the courthouse steps, walked into courtroom B, and uh, I was arraigned before a judge and a prosecuting attorney. The judge had a job, and the prosecuting attorney had a job. What's interesting is from the time that I had performed those illegal activities to the time I got arrested, I'd begin working on my salvation and working through my salvation. And God began to move in my life. It's kind of interesting, you know, there's consequences for sins. And so I worked through my salvation. And, and let me tell you, when I accepted Christ, it was an Apostle Paul experience. You can, do you believe I believe what I'm saying? I believe it. I believe it. My life changed so much so that people still don't believe. I was that guy, and now I'm this. It's amazing what God can do through the power of belief. And so I graduated from that, went on to uh, a a different college, and um, about nine months later, 10 months later, uh, a friend of mine called and said, hey, we're, we're short a guy for speaking to a disciple now. Would you be interested in coming and speaking to a group of students? I said, sure, I'll do that. Uh, I'll be there tomorrow to get you. Great. What do I need to study? I studied. He picks me up and I said, hey, by the way, I didn't ask where we were going. And he mentioned the name of that town that I'd been arrested in. I said, oh, no. It's the last per- place on earth I, I wanted to go. Last place. You get it? You understand why? But then I thought, hey, you know what? The life I live, I'm not going to see any of those people in the church. Like, I was not in the church. You get it? And so I get there, youth pastor stands up and said, hey, we've got a really cool thing. We're, 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 we've got 11 groups of students. We're breaking them up. There's a couple hundred students. We're breaking them up, and we're going to go through, and we have two different scenes. One's in the morgue, and one's in the courthouse. What are the chances? And I said, uh, do we get to choose which scene we're in? I'm going to the morgue. Like, you know what I mean? And... Uh, so I get on the bus. He said, yeah, no, you don't. Get on, the bus, uh, get on the van. They took me to the courthouse, walked up the same steps, walked into, the, into the, uh, into courtroom B, and here I am 10 months later, standing in the same courtroom that I was arraigned in, sweating. They had enlisted a prosecuting attorney and a judge. You know where I'm going. What are the chances? 100% in God's economy. The prosecuting attorney comes in. It was him. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I need to get out of here. And everybody stood up and here comes the judge. It was the judge. So I, I went over to the youth guy and I said, hey, look, um, I probably need to have a conversation with you. Can we talk? He said, can it wait? I said, it probably doesn't need to wait. <laughs> I stepped out and I said, I need to be dismissed. You remember when all that went down a few months ago? That was me. He said, that was you. And he hugs me, you know? And I'm like, I said, I really, 
don't think that I need to be here. He said, oh, you need to be here. As a matter of fact, I want you to close all 11 sessions and share what God has done in your life. And let me tell you, so here was the thing. We were bringing all these students through and he had enlisted to a, a judge and a prosecuting attorney that did not attend church at all, that were not Christ's followers. And he had enlisted them, and, and he, was, he was pulling somebody from every group out on trial, putting them on trial for their faith to see if they could be convicted because of their works as being a Christian, Christ follower. Very similar to the story today. So 11 times I stood and shared my story. Can you imagine what that judge must have thought, by the way? The first time I stood and said, he... He had a job to do 10 months ago. He had a job to do 10 months ago, but for the grace of God, I would be sentenced to 20 years in prison right now. I shared, and I'm gonna tell you, if you think God can't leverage what you can do, if you think you've done something that's outside what God can use, you're foolish. God wants to leverage who you are, what you can and can't do. He wants to leverage where you live, work, and play. He wants to leverage your influence. He wants to give you influence. He wants you to demonstrate your faith, to take a stand, to step out. He wants to call attention to Jesus through you and through me. We've got to quit being wimpy Christians and stand up in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power of belief, and demonstrate our faith in such a way that others understand what they don't have. In those two days, 32 people accepted Christ. Ten months before, I was in bondage. I was in bondage in that courtroom. The power of belief cannot be dismissed in my life for what God has done. Those 32 people that accepted Christ included the prosecuting attorney, included the judge. How does God reverse the roles for the one who was, who was being judged to be the one who is setting people free through the power of the living God? It is the power of belief. Don't water it down. Don't sell it out. This is what you're called to do. You can do this. You're anointed. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit as a Christ follower. If you would, take a moment. Bow your heads with me. I'm going to close with this. I would be not who I am if I didn't talk about the opportunity to receive Christ. You see, I struggled for years and years and years with whether or not I'd done what it took to be saved, to be a Christ follower. Years I struggled. Have I done what I take? It was all about works. And as God began to work in my life, I came to the point in time in my life where I said, Lord, if I've never been saved before, I need to know that I'm saved right now because I know there's more for me. And I struggled. I struggled. So my question for the group today, the group online, the the group in LaGrange is simply this. Without anybody looking around, how many of you would say, hey, Don, if I died right now, I know for sure that I'd spend eternity in heaven. I have no doubt. Would you simply lift your hand up? Just lift them up real quick. Put them back down. Now, that's a lot of people, but that's not everybody. That's not everybody. My story needs to matter. My belief needs to matter. Yours too. So today, if God's speaking to you, and the way that you know that, probably your heart's beating in your throat. If God's speaking to you and said, hey, what he's saying is true, that the gospel is real. If if God has brought you here today, or or you're sitting in front of your computer, or you're, you're in LaGrange, and you're tired of not knowing, and you're tired of struggling, 
and you want to have a moment in time where, where you, you, you confess your sins, you repent, you have a change of ways, then I want to invite you to pray with me. The prayer's not magical. We know that it's not going to save you. What saves you is your heart to believe Jesus in that moment. And so if, if you're tired of struggling, I want to invite you to pray with me right now. You pray silently as I pray aloud. Nobody's going to look around. This is your moment. So if, you, if that's your decision today, I invite you to pray with me. Lord, dear Lord Jesus, today, to the best of my ability, I'm committing my life to you. I understand that, that I'm a sinner and that I cannot save myself. That my sin has separated me from you. So I confess that to you. I believe in you. I believe Jesus who he said he was. And Lord, I'm asking you to forgive my sins and I'm placing my faith, my trust in you in hopes you will grow my belief. To the best of my ability from this moment on, I seek to honor you with my life. In Jesus' name.